Good morning, Redemption. Can you imagine our world without Jesus? Like, without Jesus, if you could go back in time, let's say like back to the future, you got some time machine, you were able to go back in time, like any of those time travel movies where you go back and they change something, and then when they go back to the future, things are different, things are disappearing, or things that were once there are no longer there, or things have unraveled. Uh, so if you could do that, if you could go back in time, maybe our drummer, Ethan Rohde, he would let you use his DeLorean, and you're gonna hit 88 miles per hour, 1.21 gigawatts, or whatever, you're gonna get back in time. And if you were able to pluck Jesus somehow out of history, how would today look different? Would we have hospitals? Did you know that modern hospitals were invented by followers of Jesus who believe that Jesus is the great physician and they, they invented these things as a means of trying to care for the sick because they believe Jesus came to care for the sick and the broken. Uh, early nursing movements actually began with Christians running into the plague-ridden cities as everyone else who could was getting out of Dodge and running for the hills. And they were able to do so because they believed Jesus ultimately conquered sickness and death and it no longer has the last word. So there was courage to go in in the face of it and to help treat the sick and to care for the broken. Here in Phoenix, you, you know, you come back to the future today and uh, St. Joseph's Hospital and Dignity Health would, would disappear. Thousands of hospitals in some of the most vulnerable places of the world today would be gone. Or what about universities? Universities were also invented by followers of Jesus, believing that Jesus is the great teacher, the one who holds all truth together in himself. And so today we would come back and we would find, man, no Harvard or Princeton or Yale, these would vanish. And I could never get into those schools anyways, but for those of you who could, you wouldn't be able to, right? Uh, they would be gone. And we see even around the world, widespread literacy and education movements uh, were, are indebted to followers of Jesus because they believe Jesus is the truth and the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And so there would be this massive impact on universities and on education. What about humanitarian relief, right? There'd be no world vision. There'd be no food for the hungry. Did you know that 40% of the largest uh, charities globally today are faith-based nonprofits, faith-based charities? And studies have shown that Christians as well, like followers of Jesus, uh, are radically more generous, more giving than their neighbors. And that's not because we're all that great, but it's because we follow a generous savior. If all the churches in America disappeared tomorrow, Rodney, Baylor, or Rodney Stark of Baylor University, he estimates it would cost the American economy $2.67 trillion a year, not to mention hundreds of billions of dollars in mental health care costs. We could go on. We could also talk about human rights and modern science, which scholars widely agree these are impacts of Jesus's impact and his movement and followers on the world because of the belief in things that like the God revealed in Christ as the God of love who gives dignity and well-being and value to every person and particularly the vulnerable, which led to human rights. Or the belief that the God revealed in Christ is the sustainer who brings order and design and structure to all creation and invites us to explore in awe and wonder, which led to modern science. You can thank Jesus for that iPhone in your pocket, right? But that would disappear and go away. What year would it even be? It wouldn't be 2022. <laughs> we, we count time, uh, B.C., A.D., before Christ, after him. Like when... Uh, when would we be right now? We don't, we don't know. Like The world has been so impacted by Jesus because Jesus is the most significant and important person who has ever walked the face of the earth. 
He has impacted our world more than anyone else in history. The historian Yaroslav Pelikan, he notes that if somehow we had some super magnet and we were able to pull out every scrap and trace of Jesus and his impact, he asked how much would be left. Two billion worshipers, over two billion people, over a third of the world's population around the world worships Jesus and identifies with him as Lord. There's a scholar, Jeremiah Johnson, who says, man, when we try and think about our world without Jesus and his impact, it's unimaginable. It's unimaginable. Hard to imagine. I can't imagine our world, what it would be like if we came back and how much would disappear, how much would unravel aside from his impact. Now, all of that, that is the impact of Jesus, but what about the person of Jesus? Those things are the uh, ripples of the waves kind of moving out from the person of Jesus. But who is this rock who has crashed down at the center leading to such a monumental impact in our world? The title of today's message is Jesus Is. And we're going to be looking at eight different titles, eight different descriptions for who Jesus is to try and seek to understand who is this person at the center of such a monumental, massive impact that has radically reordered and shaped our world around himself. We are in a series on Colossians. So if you have your Bible there, you want to turn to Colossians chapter one. We're going to be in verse 15, starting there. Uh, but what we're going to find here is, man, Colossians 1. This, this is a couple verses, but it is like one of those cans when you're a kid where you kind of open the can and like all this stuff pops out. Like these few verses are jam-packed with all these titles of who Jesus is, his identity. And so we're going to take them out and try one at a time, sort of unpack, man, open a can. I, we're not going to open a can, but we're going to, we're going to open this thing. We're going to look at who is Jesus. What are these different things that are jam-packed in here that reveal the glory and the beauty of who Christ is? Let's start with chapter 1, Colossians, verse 15. We read that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Let's start there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, Paul says here that God is invisible. So Jesus is the image, but he says God is invisible. God is spiritual. He is immaterial because God is creator. We are creation. God is the artist. We are in his painting. And so as the artist, God is invisible. He is outside of creation, outside of the painting, but we are inside. So we can't see God, but God has placed an image of himself within creation, within the painting, so to speak, that we can see. Now, that phrase, image of God, that might sound familiar, and that's because it actually comes from page one of the Bible, Genesis 1. And if we were to go back to Genesis 1, what we find is the image of God is actually the deepest human vocation. The deepest thing that we were made for is to image and reflect God into the world. And it comes from ancient rulers, ancient kings. They would put statues of themselves throughout their kingdom. And it was a way of going, you're walking through the kingdom, you see a statue, you're like, oh, yeah, it's a reminder of who's in charge. That's the king that's in charge. And the king himself was an image of God. And so like a king, God places all of these statues throughout the kingdom of creation, only they're not made of wood and stone. They're made of flesh and bone, you and I. And throughout the Old Testament, God says, hey, don't make images of me like the other nations do because you are an image of me. You are my images called to reflect my rule and my character and all into my purposes for creation. 
Only the problem is that you and I, we jacked it up. We messed it up. We are corrupted images that we, uh, we didn't lose the image, but we marred the image. And so you look at humans under the conditions of sin, and you can still see glimmers and reflections and pieces of who God is, but we don't get the full accurate reflection because of sin. And so what Paul is saying here, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the true image. He has come to restore the understanding of what, who God is, what God is like, Jesus is the accurate image and reflection of the invisible God. And so if you want to know what God is like, he's saying, look at Jesus. It's about a month ago, I was um, at this conference. I was in a conversation with a friend and he and I were talking. I noticed there were some people, a couple that were over on the side and they were like waiting to talk with me. And I could tell out of the corner of my eye that they were really happy. There was like this excitement, this exuberance on their face, you know? And it's like, oh man, maybe they like read one of my books or something and they're really excited to talk to me. And so, you know, I kind of grab up my conversation and I get done and I turn to look at them and they, they see me then looking at them face to face. They get up closer and I see this look of excitement and I'll turn to uh, disappointment, you know? And I'm like, what's going on? And they, and they say to me, we're so sorry. Gotta be honest. We thought you were David Crowder. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, see, they, they, they saw the image of me and they, they thought, man, that's an image of this great guy, this great rock star, whatever. But then as they got closer and they inspected the image, they saw, yeah, there's a likeness, but it's not the full likeness. It's not the real thing. He's not the real rock star. He's not the deal. And they were very disappointed, right? Now, here's, here's the thing is Jesus will not disappoint you. Right? As you get close to him and as you look at him, you get an accurate image. He is truly God in the flesh. He is truly what God looks like. He is the rock star in person. Come up close that we could see and touch and get close to and encounter him as he is. And I think one of the challenges is that you and I, we have an image of God that has often been shaped by other people that we've seen or experiences that we had that have let us down. And so for some of you, it might be that, man, you tend to look at God and your image of God is like this harsh, hard image, like a tyrannical dictator who's just out to kind of micromanage you and control all your behavior and do everything you do and all that, you know? And, but then when you look at Jesus, he corrects your image of God. I know you see his compassion and his love and that he is for you. And he's not out to micromanage you. He's out to set you free. And as you draw closer, you see it's not someone you're trying to pursue and please and make it please. It's God pursuing you in Christ coming to get you. For others of us, you might have an image of God that's not too hard, but an image of God that is too soft. Some of us maybe more prominent in our culture today. We can look at God kind of like our cosmic yoga instructor, right? Or our transcendent life coach, which those are fine, fine profession, but we have this image where you think of like, man, God is kind of giving you some guidance or some techniques or some tricks, but it's kind of up to you. How much do you want to take it on? He's not going to push because it's kind of, it's up to you, you know, and how much you want to take on. He might ask some probing questions, but you're still ultimately the one in control. And we look at Jesus, we find, no, that God is the judge of all the earth and he is confronting evil and he is calling out sin and he is calling you not to fit him into your kingdom, but to submit your life and enter into his kingdom, which is the true kingdom, which is the reality. And so what you and I need to do is we need to, if you will, dismantle our false images of God that have times been constructed by your experience or your things or things that you've encountered and looked at other people and begin to look to Jesus and let him reconstruct accurately our understanding and right image of God. Because Jesus is 
the image. It's the image of the invisible God. Well, going on, he is also the first over all creation. Paul says, um, he's not only the image of the invisible God, he is the firstborn of all creation. And what's that mean, the, the firstborn? I am the oldest of five boys, so I got four younger brothers. I am the firstborn in my family. And I know firsthand there are many associations with being the firstborn that are not what Paul is talking about here, right? So what Paul does not mean, firstborn does not mean that Jesus is the trial run, right? Now, I had many ways in which my parents, they made all, all, all the mistakes on me. They were figuring it out, right? So I was kind of the trial run. And then my younger brothers, they all got the honey trail. They, they got life easy. They got life good because my parents, you know, they, they had to learn their way with me. And that's not what Paul's saying, that Jesus is not the father's trial run. He's also not saying, firstborn here, it's not a personality type, right? Like I always have people going, man, you're the firstborn, you're the oldest, you must be the responsible one, right? And little did they know. But now, Jesus is responsible, but that's not what this is referring to. It's also not saying that there was this time where Jesus, the eternal son of God, is the second person in the Trinity. He's not saying there was a time that he didn't exist and then he got born and he came into existence. No, Jesus has always been, he is eternal. But in the ancient Near East, this term firstborn, it was a title, it was a rank. And what it had to do with was the firstborn was the one who got the bulk of the inheritance. The father would give the firstborn son the bulk of the inheritance so they could steward it multi-generationally on behalf of the family for generations to come. And so what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the firstborn. He is the first over all creation. Jesus inherits the farm. He gets it all. Jesus owns this world and he stewards it on behalf of his father's kingdom. Now, <clears throat> this means Jesus is like Elon Musk. Dude. Like he's going, I own this, right? When it comes to creation. Jesus is like in the new Batman where uh, Bruce Wayne, he's waiting to get into the nightclub and he's coming up and they won't let him in. He's like, dude, I own this place, right? Jesus owns this place. Jesus is the first of all creation. Jesus owns all creation. And the question though is, does he own your life? Is he first in your life? Do you, are you treating him like that nightclub with Bruce Wayne kind of going, I don't know if I want to let you in or not. And maybe you can take your time, whatever. Or do you go, no, actually you own this place, Jesus. You own my life. I want to submit my life to you, Lord. I want to give your life to you. And when you do, what you find is you find freedom because you are going with the grain of the universe when you make Jesus first. And what you find is freedom because the first thing in your life, the thing that you were designed to have first in your life, the first thing in your life is not to be your career. It is not to be your grades. It is not to be whether or not your kid gets into that college. The first thing in your life is to be Jesus. The first thing in your life, it is not to be your body image. It is not to be your sex life. The first thing is not to be like whether or not you find that spouse or if you do find them and you make them first and you put all your eggs in that basket, you kind of put everything on them. It's going to receive all that. It's going, no, those things are not to be first in your life. The first thing to be first in your life is Jesus. The most important thing in your life is to be Jesus. The most significant thing, the thing that your life is to revolve around is Jesus because when you put Jesus first in your life, you are going with the grain of all creation. Jesus is the first over all creation. When you go against the grain of creation, when you make other things first, you get splinters, right? Because you're going against the grain of the universe. So I believe the invitation that Paul has for us here is going, don't make anything in all creation first. Rather, make first the one who is first over all creation. 
that as the church, we make him first in our lives. We put him first as our top priority. First, we go, Jesus, you own this. You own us. We love you for it. You have right of way to order and direct our lives as you see fit, because you are first. Well, why is Jesus first? What is it about him that makes him first? Paul impacts this. He says, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things, someone say all things, all things were created through him and for him. You hear that Jesus is the creator. He is the creator. That phrase, all things, shows up four times in these few short verses. All things, all things, all things, all things. What did Jesus make? Not some things, not a few things. He made all things, right? When you're looking at the Grand Canyon, he made it. Niagara Falls, he made it, right? The Himalayan Mountains, Jesus. The Northern Lights, Jesus. And he made not only the massive things, he also made the mundane things. Your left pinky toe, Jesus. The ink in that pen, some of you are taking notes with, Jesus. He made it all. It all comes from him. Paul keeps going. He describes some of these all things that Jesus made. He goes on and says, man, whether visible or invisible, meaning whether your body comes from Jesus and your emotions come from Jesus. You're visible and you're invisible, meaning the visible stuff like the concrete and brick structures around that we see and the invisible stuff like angels and demons and spiritual powers that are at war in our world, they all come from Jesus because he is the creator. Yeah, okay, well, those things, but what, what about all the big powerful things that just, yeah, he says, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, the government belongs to Jesus, Right? Whether Ukraine or Russia, whether the United States or China, the governments and rulers of this world are accountable to Jesus because they ultimately come from Jesus. They belong to him. And in the ancient world, this language, dominion, authority, see with economic powers as well, Google, TikTok, they're accountable to Jesus, right? Wall Street and Silicon Valley, Everything in creation, the powers of this world, including you and I, we are all accountable to Jesus because we all come from Jesus. Dude, Jesus is more meta here than Facebook, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg, he's trying to like create this virtual reality that he can be king over this virtual universe. But even the things that they're being used to create virtual reality, these ultimately come from Jesus, who is the king of actual reality, Right? Jesus is the king of all reality because he is the creator of all reality. We have this phrase we love to say here, all of life is all for Jesus. And the reason we say that is because all of life comes from Jesus and it belongs to Jesus. As creator, he is the creator, Lord of all creation, but is he the Lord of your life? That mission statement is going, man, God, we want to live all of our life, Jesus, for you under your reign because it all belongs to you. What does that mean, all of life? There's this quote we love here by Abraham Kuyper, an old theologian, but he basically said, um, there is not one square inch in all creation over which Christ does not declare mine. He is the creator and ruler of all things. And when, when Jesus says mine, it's not like some greedy toddler who's a mine, you know, like Jesus more like that. But it's more like the maker, the creator, like the masterpiece of a painting where the, the artist goes, mine, like I love this. I made this for my glory to reflect my majesty. It's, 
you are mine, Jesus says. You are mine. Again, not like a greedy, but like I want to shower my, my affection for you, my purposes for you, my glory for you. Jesus is going, it's mine. And my question for you is, are you living with a sacred secular divide? Where you kind of have your sacred stuff, like Sunday morning, that belongs to Jesus, check. I got my Bible study over here, that belongs to Jesus, check. But all this other stuff with work and marriage or family or friends or whatever, community, all the different stuff involved, all that stuff, that's just kind of secular stuff, it's separate. No. Paul goes, dude, Jesus, not just smelling the flowers, he created the flowers. He didn't just make a religion, he created everything. It belongs to him. And so the invitation for you and for I is to live all of life, all for Jesus, under his reign, learning to see our work and our families and our jobs and our marriages and our friends and all the different stuff that we're involved in, to live all of life under the reign of Jesus, knowing that it all comes from him and all accountable to him and all will return to be for his glory. He's the creator. Verse 17, Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul's saying here that Jesus is the sustainer. He's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. Jesus didn't just make the world and walk away. No, Jesus is the glue that's holding all things together. That includes you and I. You know, I kind of opened this message talking about, man, imagine our world without Jesus. The reality is we wouldn't have a world without Jesus. Not only because he made it back in the beginning, because right now, as you and I talk, he is at the center holding all things together. If Jesus were to let go, our building would unravel, the creation would, like our bodies would implode. We would just like fracture and fragment into nothing. The reason we're here right now, whether you know it or not, whether our world knows it or not, we exist because Jesus is sustaining and holding all things together. He is the sustainer. And he does it effortlessly. Now, I think one of the challenges is that sometimes you may have had some folks who have abandoned you, who walked away, who were supposed to sustain you, and they weren't there for you when you needed them. You were banking on them to be there for you, but they let go and they let you down and you found yourself unraveling just because, man, they, they, they weren't there for me when I needed them to be. They didn't sustain me like I was, they, were, they said they were going to. And then unravel. But what we find when we look at Jesus, we don't need to project that back onto God. We can find Jesus healing those wounds because when we look to him, we find one who will never leave you or forsake you, who sustains and holds you together. Jesus reveals that like he is not like your sucky friend who bailed when you really needed them, right? And he is not like that deadbeat dad who walked away and left you to fend for yourself. No, Jesus is faithful. He is holding all things together and he is holding you together, even in the midst of whatever you might be going through. Even when you hate him, he is holding on to you. Even when you're unfaithful, he is faithful to you. Even when you don't know, he's like a, even when you don't recognize it or realize, he is a stable foundation. And the power comes when you begin to hold back onto the one who's already holding on to you. Right? When you begin to receive the one that, whether you knew it or not, you were already receiving your very life from. 
that when you begin to find sustenance in your sustainer who holds you together and can pull the pieces of your life that feel like they're falling apart back together in him. Jesus is the sustainer. He is also the head of the church. Paul goes on and says, uh, verse 18, and Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of his body. Now, I'm not sure about you, but my head tells my hands and my feet what to do. My hands and my feet don't tell my head what to do, right? Even right now, on the, my head tells my hands a lot of things. I can end to be, I don't know, exaggerated hand motions, whatever else, and, and uh, they're not doing it on their own. Like my head, my brain is telling you, and similarly for you and I, like our brain, our head and all, like it was seen in the ancient world to be both the source of the body, kind of like the body kind of flows from the head, and to be the leader of the body. The head directs the body in terms of what direction and what movements all the parts go. And this image that Colossians has given us here is that Jesus is the head of his body. The church is his body. What that means is that I am not the lead pastor of this church. Jim is not the lead pastor of this church. Jesus is the lead pastor of his church, right? That he is the head of his church. And sometimes I think these titles can be misleading because they can kind of go, okay, well, what's Jim, what's Josh? But I think, Jim, I think of Gemini as more like being like the top two vertebrae, right? Like, if you think of the spinal cord, uh, you can think of like the leadership structure of a church. It's like the spinal cord. We're going, the job of the spinal cord is to take the messages from the head and from the brain and to transmit it out to the rest of the body. And so what Jim and I are trying to do is trying to tap into, Jesus, what do you want for us? How are you leading us? Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, Spirit of Jesus, what is it that you desire for your people here in Tempe in this time and place today? And... Are one of the hardest challenges going, Jesus, I don't want this thing to be driven by what I want. I want this thing to be driven by what you want. We don't want our life together as a community to be driven by what these people's preferences or these people's preferences or consumer society or everybody's got all that thing. Jesus, want to know what do you want here in Tempe for this particular us as a church body here and now? We want to be like those vertebrae in the spinal cord and listening to Jesus. And that's not only for us as leaders, for all of us in your life, for you to be going, Jesus, what directives do you have as the head for me as a part of your body? What is it that you are calling me to do? I don't want to be the, the hand trying to tell the head what to do. I don't want to be the, the, the foot or the arm or the whatever ligament I'm trying to tell the head what to do. I want to receive Jesus. What are you calling me to? What do you have for me? I had uh, about <clears throat> two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, I had this dream and there was this guy in it that I had met once. It was over six months ago. I only met for like 30 seconds in passing. Like, oh, hey, I'm Josh. Hey, I'm, you know, and anyways, haven't seen again in like over six months. Lives in another state, different place. And I had a stream where um, this person walks up to me and says, hey, can we have a conversation? It's like, yeah. You know? So we start talking and it zooms out wide angle where I can't really hear what we're saying. I just see that like, oh, it looks like a really mutually enriching, encouraging conversation. I wake up the next morning and I pray and I talk to Holly about it. I'm like, God, that felt like it meant something. And I had the sense, Holly had the sense too, that like God was saying, hey, there's going to be a conversation coming up with this person and pay attention to what they have to say. There's something, there's something God might have in that. And likewise, I'm going to pray for this person with whatever God might be stirring up or doing in them. So we can praying for them over the next day and a half. And a day and a half later, like less than two days later, uh, I get this email from this person. Again, I've never emailed from them, never talked to them, whatever. This email from this person going, uh, hey, can we have a conversation? I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, 
But there's this beautiful picture where, man, Jesus is directing his body even across geography. This person lives in another state, even across uh, denominations, even across things. Jesus is directing his body and calling the shots. And it's not only in those extravagant ways like dreams or vision and prophecy, as great as those are, it's maybe even more powerful in the mundane, in the everyday, and going, Jesus, you as the head are calling all of us as your body to to love that person that I don't really want to love to obey and be holy in this area where obedience feels costly, to sacrifice and to live a life that actually lives your life. Jesus, you as the head, would you live your life through me as your body, Jesus? And the beauty is Jesus is faithfully directing us as his people through his word and through his spirit to embody his presence in the world. Jesus is the head. Jesus is also the resurrection. Man, Paul's just going on. He's so excited here, man. This is, this is number six. So number six, uh, Jesus is the resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, that firstborn from the dead, it's saying Jesus is the resurrection. He is the death-crushing, life-giving king. The firstborn from the dead, that's language that shows up elsewhere in the the gospel for what Christ has done in his resurrection. Acts 2.24 says that Jesus was loosed from the birth pangs of death. And the picture there is that uh, the, the tomb is like a womb. And as Jesus goes down into the tomb, his suffering, his groaning is like labor pangs. And he's going into the darkness of the grave, this constricted space, the tightness and the convulsions of the labor pangs of the world. And he is birthed out of the old world into the new world, the light of the new creation in Christ, the firstborn from the dead. And he accomplished that not just for himself, but Romans 8.29 says that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, sisters. That Jesus, our older brother, has come out the other side into new creation before us. I like to think of this as like twins in the womb. Right? You think they're like two twins in the womb, and they're kind of in there and jostling around together, getting bigger and all. And then at one point, uh, birth comes, and the one comes out first, right? And that one is the firstborn, and they make their way out into the light of day, into the newness. But for the other twin, they're still back in the womb, right? And that's like you and I. You and I are still in the darkness of the old world. We still feel the convulsions of suffering and the labor pangs and the different things in this world right now that ache and that squeeze in and that constrict and can feel tight. But the invitation to the gospel Paul is saying is, man, when you are feeling hopeless, look forward to Jesus, your firstborn older brother who has gone out the other side because what has happened to him is gonna happen to you that Jesus is a sign of your future, that what he has accomplished is coming for you. And so when we feel the darkness and the constriction in this world, old world squeezing in upon us, we can look forward to the new creation that Christ has accomplished, knowing he is the firstborn. He is a sign of what's to come. And that means there is hope, whatever conditions you might find yourself in today. There is hope in Christ. When we look to Jesus, our firstborn older brother, through this kind of veil of tears and groaning, we look forward to Christ. What we find is that death no longer has the last word. Life does. The darkness of this world no longer has the last word. Light does. That the convulsions that we have are just a, they're just like a precipice. They're the threshold before entering the glory and light and power of Christ's kingdom come. 
He is our firstborn older brother who has gone out before us. We can look to him. Jesus is also fully God. Uh, We read in verse 19, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Jesus is not partially God, not somewhat God. Jesus is fully God. All of God's fullness dwells in Jesus. And back in the day, if you wanted to go visit the fullness of God, you would go to the temple. That was where the fullness of God's presence dwelt on earth and in heaven. And so you would go to the temple to try and look for that, the hot spot of God's presence. But Paul's saying the the fullness of God's presence is no longer found in this building of brick and stone. It is found in Christ, flesh and bone, that we come to Jesus and he is fully God, fully man. He is the God man. He is where God has taken up residence on earth as in heaven. That God has moved into the neighborhood. He's taken up residence. He's planted his home and his address is 4321 Jesus, right? He is where we go to encounter the fullness of God's presence. Every religion out there has a lesser view of Jesus. Right, think about it. every other religion uh, will tend to uh, respect Jesus, have a decently high view of Jesus at, at times, but not this high. All, the tendency is to take him down a notch, right? So if you think of uh, some of the cults, like in Mormonism, Jesus is a created being. He is not the creator. He's actually like the brother of Lucifer, seemed to be. Right? Or another cult, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, will say again that he is a created being, not the creator. They actually see him as the archangel Michael. That is a lesser view of Jesus. That is not uh, what the gospel declares. That No, this is the fullness of God is dwelling. This is Jesus is fully God. Uh, you think of other major world religions, like Islam, will say that Jesus is uh, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, right? Like he's, he, he's high up there. There's respect and honor, but he's not God. He can't be fully God. Or uh, Buddhism will say that, man, yeah, Jesus was a pretty enlightened person. He was fairly enlightened. Not, enlightened, not as enlightened as the Buddha, but pretty enlightened. Or Hinduism will say, yeah, he was holy, not as holy as some of the other messages, but he was pretty holy. He did all right, right? And I want you to notice the strategy here. The strategy here is not to denigrate Jesus. It is to demote him, right? It's not to denigrate him and say, oh, he's horrible. We hate him. No, so, no, no, he's good. He's good. He's good. He's, but he's not that good. He's big. He's big. He's big, but he's not He's godly, a bit godly, but he's not God. And part of the radical revolution that has changed and reshaped the world is because this is actually God in the flesh stepping into our story, stepping into our humanity, stepping into our history. And when you encounter Jesus, you are encountering the presence of the living God. And I think you and I, many in our society would say, I'm not religious. We might not identify with those other things, but we do the same thing to Jesus, right? I don't know many people in our society that would say, oh, I hate Jesus. I hate Most people don't hate him. But while we might not treat him with animosity or antagonism, we will treat him with apathy. And you don't treat him with apathy when you recognize he's fully God. And even for us as followers of Jesus in the church at times, like I've been convicted reading this this week and kind of going, God, are there ways that maybe I haven't denigrated you? Are there ways I've demoted you? Not just in my head, but in my heart. Ways that I have seen you as less than the fullness of God that you really are who has come for my salvation. Because you might respect Jesus, but respecting Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. Everybody respects Jesus, right? Like, like pretty much. Most people respect Jesus. Respecting Jesus does not make you a Christian. Worshiping Jesus does. 
that what God is inviting you is to not just be someone who respects him, but someone who worships him, who falls on your face before him and says, Jesus, you are God and I am not. In you, I am countering the presence of the living God. It's not about how good I've been or finding you as some teacher to show me the way to get to God. You are the God who has come to find me. You are the God who is reconciling all things to yourself. And that brings us to our next point. Jesus is the reconciler. Number eight, the big final wham. Jesus is the reconciler. Paul says, verse 20, that the reason God, fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ was through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We say here, Jesus is not only the creator, he is the reconciler. He's not only our past, he is our future. He's not only the one you've come from, he is the one that you ultimately will stand before who you are going to. Now that phrase, reconciler, that is a phrase for taking two who are enemies and making them friends. So whether in a marriage or amongst nations when there's enmity and tension and hostility, someone needs to take the initiative to go to the other side and seek to make peace. And in the gospel, Jesus is the reconciler who has taken the initiative to come to you. Even when you and I were his enemies, he has taken the initiative to come and to make peace and to reconcile. And he's come, Paul says, not only to reconcile you and I, but to reconcile all things. All that stuff we talked earlier, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, like all creation, he's come to reconcile to God. Now, this is not universalism, right? Like the way that Batman reconciles Gotham or whatever is by putting the Joker in jail, right? And you think reconciliation, that Jesus has atoned for our debt, our sin on the cross. He's reconciled the debt for all who would receive him. But if we reject him, we still own that debt, right? And that debt will get dealt with when God's kingdom comes, but there is this invitation of going, man, Jesus has atoned for our sin. He has paid the debt in order to reconcile not only you and I, but all creation back to God. And how has he done this? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What makes the cross so powerful? It's not when it happened 2,000 years ago. It's whatever, give or take. It's not where it happened, like Podunk, Israel, outskirts of the Roman Empire. It's system that God entered into the backwaters of history, but that's not what makes the cross so powerful. It's not even how it happened. The cross is one of the most brutal, the most brutal way ever invented to crucify, to kill someone. And yet what makes the cross, many people were crucified. What makes the cross so powerful, it's not when it happened, where it happened, how it happened. What makes the cross so powerful is who it happened to. The power of the cross is who. That as we gaze upon the cross, the one that we find crucified there, he is the image of the invisible God crucified for yours and my sin. He is the firstborn over all creation who is giving his life that his brothers and sisters might come and enter into his kingdom. He is the creator who is taking on the weight and the burden of his creation. He is the sustainer who is holding us together even as he expires his last breath. He is the reconciler, and it is his blood that is powerful enough to atone for your sin. It is his blood that is righteous enough to make you an enemy his friend. It is his blood that is strong enough to reconcile all of creation, and not only all of creation, but to reconcile you. 
Jesus is the reconciler. What greater love could you ask for? There is no greater love. There is no greater God and no other God than the God revealed in Christ. And I believe the question that Jesus has for you and for I today is the same question that he had for his disciples. Who do you say I am? I'm gonna ask you that this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? I imagine we're here on Sunday at church. I imagine not many of you have maybe been denigrated Jesus, but have you demoted him? Have you taken him down a notch? The invitation is to let the spirit pull back the veil and to see again the fresh, fresh eyes, the glory of who Christ is. I opened this message saying, man, if you could go back in time saying, back in, in history and whatnot, man, how would the world be different without Jesus? I want to ask also, if you could go back in time in your own life and someone could go back and pluck out that moment where you met Jesus, where you encountered him and you didn't have his presence in the years since that followed, how would your life be different without Jesus? Would it unravel? Would it, are there things in your life now that would disappear without him? Because the invitation of the gospel is for you and I to make Jesus, the central foundation of our life that everything else revolves around because he's worthy of being in that central place to the point that if Jesus got removed, if that time travel machine went back and and Jesus got plucked out of your life, it would be like that Jenga block where the whole tower of your life would come crumbling down. We wanna be a people who all of our lives revolve around Jesus and we say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord of all. You might be asking, well, what does that mean for our life? How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? Josh, give me some practical. Yeah, we'll get there. Like the rest of the book of Colossians is like what we do in response to that. But the proper response when we see who Jesus is, is worship. The only proper response is worship. And so this morning we want to Worship. We want to respond to who Jesus is by worshiping him. And we're going to worship him right now with our words and song as we sing. I want to invite you to worship him with your bodies as well, that we would say not only with our mouth, but with our uh, hands and our lives, that we would say, Jesus, we would want to exalt you, not necessarily because we always feel like it, but because even when we don't, you are worth it. And that as we do this week in and week out, what we are training ourselves for is to live all of life in worship that we would live all of life, all for Jesus, because Jesus is Lord over all of life. Join me in prayer. Jesus, as we come to the table this morning, Lord, we come to you who are God over all. Lord, you who gave your life, your body, given your blood shed for you, we did look to you, Lord, and we declare that, yes, Lord, you are the image of the invisible God. I want to pray that you would tear down any false images that we have, God, of who you are, and Jesus, we look to you and ask that you would rebuild properly our understanding of our maker. Jesus, we declare that you are the first. You are the first over all creation. We want to put you first in our lives before anything else, God, that central act of worship, that we would exalt you as first over all of our life, God, and Lord, that you are 
the creator. We worship you as the one from whom our lives have come and the sustainer who holds us together even now. Jesus, you are the head of this church. It is not Jim, it is not I, it is you, Jesus. And your global church all around the world, through history, got people worshiping you, lifting you up and exalting, ordering their lives around you. God, we declare one. We don't even want just our world to, to fall apart without you. God, we don't want, we want our lives to fall apart without you because we declare we depend on you. We need you, Lord. You are our head. We are your body. We worship you. And Jesus, you are our resurrection, our hope, the one, God, when things feel hopeless, I prefer anyone this morning who's feeling the darkness, the convulsions, the labor pangs of this world. We look forward to you, Jesus, our firstborn older brother. We thank you that what you have accomplished is coming for us. Jesus, you are fully God and our reconciler. We don't want to demote you. We don't want to make you any less, God. We want to exalt you in our hearts because you are already exalted over all creation, Lord. Thank you that you gave your life, God, for us in our place. This bread of your body given, this wine, a sign of your blood shed, Lord. We receive it in gratitude, thanksgiving, and worship, Lord. And we ask that all our life, God, would be all for you, Jesus, because you are the Lord over all of life. God, you are over all. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and we join, God, and we declare you, God, are over all. Amen.